Hey, and welcome to episode 32 of 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm joined by Sean Chow, founder and CEO of Catalytic, a company that is trying to dramatically improve the way work gets done by using automation. I met Sean for the first time to discuss the role of artificial intelligence in software and where we thought the future of work was headed. He explained that Catalytic was built out of his own frustrations from having to repeatedly do tedious tasks. On today's show, we'll cover all of this and more, including some lessons learned from Sean's first company, Fieldglass. So let's dive in. Thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you. It is a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, of course. Um, so start by telling us about Catalytic and what the idea is and what was the opportunity that you saw? So the idea with Catalytic is largely born from my own frustrations and experiences in building field glass and serving a lot of large Fortune 100, Fortune 500-esque customers. Uh, and, and one of the things I noticed was that uh, while the world had gotten pretty good, or at least much better in project management, that everything outside of that, in, in terms of uh, a more recurring business process, not things as, not, not like trying to figure things out, projects, business, um, in, in terms of discovery, the recurring business processes world was really suffering. Uh, there wasn't a lot of innovation. The solutions in the space were generally very expensive, very hard to implement, and just felt like they hadn't been updated in a long time. So that's one of the spaces that I really saw an opportunity in, um, just in terms of put, bringing something built from scratch to really address that space, building something that's more modern. Uh, that people can really enjoy using, but solves this kind of enterprise problem around recurring business processes. And the way we look at the problem, well, at least the way I initially thought about it, was we, we want to fundamentally get people to work better together. We want them to be able to accomplish a task together. If it's just like one person, they can get a lot of things done themselves. If it's two people, they can typically muscle their way through it. But as you add more people in, and this is where you start getting into the world of processes, as you add more people in, the number of errors and handoffs and, as a result, rework and drop balls and frustration really skyrockets. Uh, so, you know, my original idea was how do we have a platform that really helps people with the handoff problems and with being able to just communicate and reduce the number of drop balls, reduce the amount of rework, and then became very logical as we started building out and exploring this platform that we should also be automating away a lot of the mundane work that people do uh, because as we're trying to really just take friction out of business processes, these mundane type of tasks came to the front and people you know, definitely were asking us, hey, can you just help me not have to do this kind of double data entry or not have to do this mundane task of taking this file and moving it over there or this calculation on the spreadsheet, filling out this document. And then that's really where we were. That's, so that's how we originated. And that's where we kind of uh, use as our initial launching point. And it's evolved since then a little bit more as we started to 
explore new technologies and, and understand what we can bring to the table to continue to automate away more and more parts of a team's uh, process. Yes, definitely. I know we've talked a lot about that at length. And so I guess, you know, you, you had Field Glass and then it was acquired. So what made you want to start another company again, though? Were you, did you feel like you already did this or were you itching to do something new again after the acquisition? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I actually spent a fair amount of time really thinking about that, too. I didn't want to go down the default uh, track. I didn't want to, like, create something that was very similar to the space I had been in for so long. I didn't want to create, like, a derivative product or anything like that. Uh, so I really took myself out of any sort of, you know, specific um, company or, like, I just basically took time off. I took a year off to think about what I wanted to do. Did I want to go to a large company? Did I want to um, go to a small company and try to help make it big? Did I want to do a startup again? And of course, everyone's always saying, you don't want to do a startup again. It's kind of the worst thing to go through and you've already done it once. <laughs> but you know, when I thought about it, I, I, I think in my heart of hearts, I'm a product guy. I love products. I love creating stuff. I love technology. And so the ability to create a new product using new technology, it doesn't exist in a lot of places. I mean, sometimes you see it in a large company if there's, let's say, you know, a new product line they want to launch. But really, the place where you have the greatest ability to kind of have that and have that freedom to do what you think is right from ground up is in a startup. And so that's, I think, why I ended up doing a startup again, because you know, I just, I love product. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so what has growing a startup in Chicago been like? You know, how do you view the Chicago tech scene? Starting Catalytic in Chicago has been a very different experience than when we started Field Glass in Chicago 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, the ecosystem has matured a lot. Uh, the amount of capital, fellow entrepreneurs, support ecosystems, you know, grown exponentially. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's probably actually in many ways gone from something that felt very close to zero to something that feels very robust. So today there's just tons of resources available. There are a lot of other fellow entrepreneurs that you can spend time with and they run the gamut. You know, you have scrappy uh, first time entrepreneurs. You have a lot of other accomplished entrepreneurs. And so the ecosystem feels amazing, and it's a great place to be. Um, you know, I, I think this is a, a great time to be starting a company in Chicago. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right, now let's switch gears and talk about your earlier life. So where did you grow up? So I was born in Taiwan. Uh, and oh, then wow, okay. my family, yeah. Yeah, so my family came over when I was five, though. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm, I was uh, pretty much grew up uh, here in the U.S. And our first place we moved to, ironically, was only a few miles away from where I live now, although I didn't even know that until my dad came and visited me and told us that, hey, we actually first immigrated right around this place. 
Um, but we moved all over uh, as kids. You know, our parents were constantly in pursuit of the American dream. So we moved probably 20 times before I left uh, before I left for college. So that's oh. an extreme amount of moving. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, but it's the only life we knew. So I, I don't really have a point of comparison other than when I compare myself to, let's say, my wife or, or friends that I spend time with who really been rooted in one place for a long time. I mean, there's definitely mm-hmm. a lot of difference in the way we were raised, but it, it was interesting. Yeah. And so what did your parents do growing up? They were, I think, uh, classic Chinese immigrants, uh, Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants, in that they were looking for, they wanted to create uh, or open up and run a Chinese restaurant. And so that's incredibly tough business. Uh, and I don't, I mean, you know, I would shy away from the restaurant business because I've seen how hard it is. But I think it's even harder when you're coming as an immigrant um, and, and you don't really have enough kind of business savvy uh, coupled together with, you know, this kind of uh there's a fair amount of luck, I think, that goes into a restaurant as well, which we mm-hmm. also obviously didn't have a lot of. So, I mean, what was so growing up, though, you saw your parents kind of struggling with this restaurant and, and kind of what was your take on it? Just that they worked really hard and, and that part of it is luck or that if you work really hard, things will work out. Um, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about that, uh, the impact that seeing that had on me. Uh, it wasn't a single restaurant. I mean, we moved around mm-hmm. a lot. So there were different times where they were working at restaurants, different times when they were trying to open, trying their hand at opening a restaurant. Um, and I think, you know, my overall sense is just that it was incredibly long hours. We were classic latchkey kids you know, watching after ourselves at a very, very young age. Um, But, you know, it was incredibly long hours for our parents. They worked incredibly hard. It was physically straining and I think very emotionally straining um, with very little results. You know, I mean, they they never really ended up with a lot of security. Uh, But I think my takeaway from that is that there's a lot to be said for hard work and tenacity. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot to be said. And so what I saw that was a fundamental mistake and how my parents approached it is that they never really spent the time to think about how business works, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's actually informed me a lot. I've seen that hard work and perseverance has a lot of value, but I've also seen that it's not enough, right? And so that's why I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, business and how business works and how a product needs to come together. It's also probably why I love product versus service business, because I've also seen how service businesses have a fundamental scale problem. I I shouldn't say problem, but they have a different kind of scaling. Um, But, you know, I I look at that. I I say I like software. I like that ultra scalable business. And I also really spend a lot of time thinking about the dynamics of what will make something successful versus just, you know, being one of any other Chinese restaurant you're going to, you're going to drive by. Yeah. Yes, definitely. 
Um, and I think that's so interesting, though, it's because your parents were small scale entrepreneurs. And so did you ever think about entrepreneurship as your own career growing up? Or did you, you know, when did you first start thinking that I could be an entrepreneur for a living? I never thought of my parents as small scale entrepreneurs, uh, which is interesting because clearly they were. And I'm sure that had a huge impact in the way I thought about things. Uh, but I started life at Anderson. So it's yeah. kind of the antithesis of entrepreneurship in some ways, but it is also a very entrepreneurial environment. I mean, consulting is a very independent environment. You're, you're um, kind of, you have a fair amount of autonomy. Uh, and I think I had an extreme amount of autonomy as a, uh, even as a new uh, consultant. And I was always comfortable with that kind of autonomous operations and having to have to make things up as I went along. And I think that also feeds a lot into entrepreneurship. Um, I think one of the biggest factors in me thinking of myself as being uh, an entrepreneur and potentially being able to succeed as an entrepreneur, because I definitely did not always think that way, uh, was toward the tail end of college when I met uh, Paul Magelli, uh who was at that time the dean of the of the MBA program at U of I, Urbana, uh, Champaign, which is where I was at school. And you know he was he was a, a really special kind of mentor to me in, in that he I, I think he saw how much passion I had for technology, uh, and he really encouraged me to explore even though that wasn't the path i mean i it, to me at the time it was kind of a hobby and i was on a track uh that was very different and Magelli was the one who really said sean you know i know you want to do this thing but i can tell that you really want to do this other thing around technology and i believe you have enough passion and dedication to actually make this into something really big. And I also believe, by the way, that it's going to be something really big. So this was 95, and we're talking about the web here in 95. And he didn't even really know what the web was, but he knew enough and had enough kind of instinct to say, I think this will be big one day. And I, just as an early experimenter on the web, and he saw how much I loved it, he really pushed me. And I think instilled in me a sense of belief in my ability to actually do something entrepreneurial and to be successful myself. And so because you had a mentor like that or, or someone pushing you with positive encouragement, do you ever try to do that with your own employees now? Because I, I know we talk about, you know, when I was at Deloitte, one of my managers is something really interesting that resonated with me. And she said, to be a good manager, you have to know your employees and kind of know if they need like the carrot versus the classic stick. Um, and so I, and I'm a big believer in positive reinforcement as a way to to really shape people. And so do you do that now that you're a manager of, of you know, a whole company? Yeah, I've always done that. I, I, I think um, having been the beneficiary of a good mentor and someone who really believed in me, uh, I think I try to give forward uh, in two ways. One is with employees of steel glass or catalytic i've always tried to adopt a philosophy of putting their career first and wherever i'm at so right now at catalytic if, if someone works at catalytic 
we're helping them with their career and they're helping us with catalytic, that may not always be the best thing for them. And I'm going to try to put the best thing for their career first. So I don't want someone to feel like they have this, uh, I, I guess they have to have this kind of undying loyalty to catalytic. I mean, we kind of are co-owners of their career while they're at catalytic. They're the primary owner and we're shepherds just trying to help them get what they want accomplished. So I view the employer's mission very much as one of trying to fundamentally make employees successful in whatever it is they want to do. And they're going to be at our company for however long they're at our company. It could be a long, long time, and it could be a much shorter time if they don't, if they want to change direction. So that's one. The other is with other entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I definitely try to give time to entrepreneurs and um, I get a lot of opportunities to be like an advisor or, or maybe a board member, and I try to not have any sort of formal relationship like that because then I find that, you know, it, it becomes almost a, a different kind of relationship. Instead, I'll try to just be available for entrepreneurs. So if they want mm -hmm. to just meet and grab coffee or if they want to just shoot around a couple of different ideas, kick around a couple of different thoughts, I'm more than happy to do that and more than happy to share, you know, my experiences. Uh, I think in this day and age, there's so many top 10 lists for what you should do as an entrepreneur that I'm not going to add a whole lot of value from that, perspective, from that perspective. So where I can add value is just telling people, this is the route that we went on at Fieldglass or whatever, you know, relevant story I can bring up. And this is how it turned out. So you mentioned Field Glass, and how does your experience at Field Glass shape how you wanted to build this new company? Um, you know, anything that you wanted to do different this time around? Yeah, for sure. There are a lot of things that I think we did very well at Field Glass, and obviously I want to carry a lot of those forward. Uh, but there were also a lot of things that I didn't think we did as well, or maybe we did well, but it was not intentional. It was just something that we kind of lucked out in. And so I'm trying to be cognizant of all those different areas and make sure that we take care of them at Catalytic. Uh, but in many ways, the whole world has changed. You know, the world, the technology has changed, the way people sell software has changed. I mean, we talked a little bit about this. You know, the, the way enterprise software was sold in 2000 to the way it's sold now has yeah. gone through a significant shift. Yes. Um, and that requires everything to be different, right? Whether it's your sales force, the way you create product, the way you, you engage with the customer, pricing model, value creation, messaging, positioning. I mean, everything has to shift as a result of this. So even though I do think we did a lot of things right at Fieldglass, I don't view myself as having a playbook. You know, I, I, I don't have a playbook. I mean, we're making it up. We're figuring out what we have to do like any other startup. I just have a lot more experiences to draw from and I've made a lot more mistakes that are obvious mistakes that I don't have to make again but what I don't know is the right answer <laughs> I, yeah. I just know more I know a lot more of the wrong answers yeah that makes sense and so going back to that you talked about advice and there's so much out there but what is the best piece of advice that you've personally received oh man uh well, I think we have to dissect that a little bit more, like from a career perspective or how to grow a company. Oh, either. Uh, you know, anything. 
Oh, uh, man. Uh, usually I mean from a career perspective, but a life perspective would be interesting also. I will say from a life advice perspective, the, the whole notion of balance and work-life balance is so important. And mm. we're, we're now entering again an era where the uh, old, you know the self-sacrificing entrepreneur is being celebrated. And that's really a horrible thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, the notion of 80-hour work weeks, which I've done, um, is not one to be celebrated at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea of, like, just this death march and a startup and people who are willing to go through this death march and taking pride in these sorts of things is a horrible thing. And so uh, from a life perspective, I think that's one of the trite pieces of advice that is very, very true. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your loved ones. You know, that you will never regret that. If you do the reverse, you will always regret that. It's so funny you so, say that because I was just reading about Uber and a lot of people were writing like, oh, as Travis is leaving, I'm going to write some nice things about him, which is interesting. And one of them was like, he works harder than everyone else in the team. You know, we had a meeting at 11 p.m. And then he'd say, like, I have to go off to this meeting with China at 12 at midnight and he'd be up until three and I just thought it was an awful example because, you know, to me, yes, there are a million things to do. But if you see the CEO working until 3 a.m., like what kind of tone does that set for the rest of the company? And and are there really things that, you know, I don't think necessarily working around the clock is saying like, oh, he was more committed than anyone else. It just makes me kind of depressed that that was the norm. Yeah, and it gets celebrated. I mean, that, I think yes. that's the thing is that it, it really is this kind of, culture that celebrates, um, you know, slavish dedication. And it's not a good thing. It really isn't. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, it's also very, it's very, um, it feeds into kind of this lack of diversity because who else has that kind of ability except for single dedicated people that only want to do one thing, work. Yes. Right? It makes it very not family friendly. Yes. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's a horrible thing, and I'd love to see that culture go away. Uh, and I actually have to moderate myself from doing that. I mean, you're, you're, again, kind of talking about Travis setting that tone as a CEO, and I do think that the CEO very much sets that tone, uh, and, and I'm guilty of that. I mean, I'll be up at 11 you know, p.m., uh, or sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'll jump on Slack, and I'll post something. <laughs> And, and so I'm sure people who are looking at my activity on Slack are like, oh, my God, John's just working nonstop around the clock. Um, and we try to actually have times where we're like, okay, let's just you know get off Slack. Let's not do things. My co-founder and I have talked about this, although I'm still not as good at it as I should be. Um, but this is trying to give people their base when they're away yeah. from work and they're recharging. And we do tell people very specifically when they're being onboarded, hey, if you're particip- if you're not at work and there are things happening on Slack, do not feel obligated to respond back. Oh, yeah. It is just, you know, sometimes people want to. We have a lot of people who are very passionate about what we do. And if you want to engage, feel free to. Do not feel like you have to. We're not going to view you negatively for not doing it. It's funny because I deleted Slack from my phone for that reason. And and one thing we talked about Ionic was 
how, and I talked about this with Jason Fried at Basecamp a few weeks ago because I was saying Slack is interesting, but it also makes you feel like if you're not answering right away, you won't be able to be part of the discussion. And so how do you create a culture where it's not like whoever responds first is necessarily right? Because Slack can feel overwhelming. You're getting pinged a hundred times and you're like, oh my God, a whole conversation happened and I didn't have any input. And it's, it's a little frustrating if you were like me working at Ionic when I was a remote worker going to business school. So my hours were always kind of odd and I might've been working late, but it was because I had class during the day. And so I was, I was, we were constantly thinking of like, how can we enable people to really have a say? And that's when we moved over to Basecamp and we were saying like, well, we use both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Slack. I, I think they as a company and a product have done so many things right. Um, but I do think that people try to use Slack for way more than it really should be used for. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think decisions should ever be made in Slack uh, because of this time timing aspect. I mean, if you're not engaged in the conversation, you just kind of miss the whole thing. And yeah. so making really important decisions in Slack is probably a horrible idea. Uh, likewise, trying to do any sort of work flow or task uh, or project management in Slack is also a terrible idea. <laughs> and that's where, you know, I think Basecamp uh, fills a different kind of need. That's where Catalytic uh, yeah. fills a different kind of need. I mean, we are much more structured in terms of getting a specific business outcome done. Yes, I agree. Okay, so we're going to switch down to the end with some fun questions. What's another Chicago or Midwest startup that you're a big fan of? Oh, man, there are so many. And again, a lot of it is kind of uh, on different dimensions. You know, I look at the Chicago startups and um, I admire so many of them, different reasons. You know, I really love uh, Jelly Vision's culture. They just have this kind of fun, quirky culture that I really admire. Mm -hmm. I think Amanda does an amazing job there of uh, creating a really good persona for the company. Um, I look at Outcome Health. And just uh, and really am in awe of how fast they've built that company and the traction that they've gotten. Um, I look at something like Tempest uh, and look at the problem that they're trying to solve. I mean, this is a case where you have someone like Eric who's had so much success over the years. And now he's turning all that smarts and all that money to solving a serious life saving problem. Yes. Um, there's, there's just so many Chicago companies that are doing amazing things. Uh, so again, you know, just in terms of if you are a startup, this is such a, there's so many great pairs to have here. Yes, definitely. And so because we're uh, short on time, I'm just going to ask one more question. If you could interview one founder, who would it be and why? You know what? I think I would love to interview Walt Disney. Really? Okay, um, why? Yeah, because I, I think he was a very atypical type of entrepreneur. Um, I think his background was very challenging. Um, I think the way he constructed something and, and the magnitude of what he constructed from a cultural impact uh, is like huge and you know it still has amazing impact to this day so i think he did something that is like truly groundbreaking and and i think the obvious ones for a tech entrepreneur to say would be like 
Thomas Edison, uh, who I would also, by the way, love to interview. But I think Disney, just in terms of the business acumen and his ability to shape a vision that was very contrary to almost everything anyone was telling him, uh, and kind of a single-minded approach to how he wanted to craft Disney is something that I really admire. And I'm, I'm not saying that I want to do that same sort of thing, but it's just a fascinating uh, picture to me. I'd love to be able to talk to him a little bit more about what was going through his mind and how he kind of, um, how he had such a sharp vision, despite all the different setbacks, all the different people kind of telling him otherwise. I think that's a great answer. Uh, and it's a new one for me. So thank you for that. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for being on my show. It was awesome to have you. All right, Chrissy. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on episode 32. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for episode 33.